0: Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writer's Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner Ben Acker for Supernatural, Puss and Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others, We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so. Uh, and follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, tonight, tonight or whenever the time is right. It's the Writers' Panel with Man Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh.
1: I mean, Baena, like, I really wish that was a thing, but I think at this point, like, I'm behind the eight balls, so it's probably Baena. But it's really Baena.
0: This is what we're starting with. Jeff Baena's here. Yeah, or Baena. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being here. Uh, Jeff is the writer-director of Joshi, a new film. That's right. Is it out already? Yeah, it is out. Congratulations. Unbeknownst
1: to most people, yeah, it's out. um, It's on VOD, and it's in some theaters. Okay, great. Yeah. Um,
0: Tell me about... This movie. You you've written a few screenplays. You had directed, written and directed uh, Life After Beth. Right. Um, so so why this movie? Why was this the next thing you wanted to do?
1: This was actually the first thing I was going to direct. Um, so as a, I mean, because we're talking about screenwriting and stuff, I started off as a screenwriter. Mm-hmm. I always I went to film school, and my goal was to always to be a director. But um, when I graduated, I, my first job out here in Los Angeles was working with Robert Zemeckis. So I worked on What Lies Beneath and Castaway as a PA, and got a lot of experience in production, and then. Um, I linked up with David O'Russell Russell and started working with him as a uh, first as an assistant editor, but then we became co-writers together. So we wrote um, I Heart Huckabees together. We wrote like three other scripts together. And around that time, I had written uh, Life After Beth. I think it was like 2003. I tried to get that going, and it kind of fell apart at the last second due to like a bunch of stuff that was out of my control. And um, sort of put that off to the side And then just kind of focused on screenwriting For I guess it was like 10 years or something And then um, a friend of mine Who runs American Zoetrope Kind of figured out the scam with the um, It's not a scam but it feels like a, it always feels like a scam When you're doing <laughs> sure. this shit If you're getting
0: um, away with actually making a thing
1: Yeah so it, it's basically a scam But you, you get a tax credit from California if you shoot here And so we got the tax credit, you put my name in And um, I was going to make This movie Joshi. And um, and back then, it was sort of a sort of different incarnation. It was the same idea. I wanted to do um, more of an improvised thing. I was always inspired by Robert Altman, and that was someone that I kind of um, looked at, too, in terms of his process and how he would work with a script and then kind of abandon the script and kind of just let the actors sort of feel it out. Um, and then, so Adam Pally and I had talked about this idea for I don't know a while. He he and I play basketball together, so this is back in like 2012. And I mean, this story the story feels like it's like going in so many different directions, no, it's so is, you're, complicated. You're
0: giving us a lot to sort of dig into afterwards. Yeah, so, so I'm, giving, I'm setting the, I'm like, setting the table for. Let's you. get the framework.
1: Yeah, so we play basketball together. Um, some people, I, I guess, some people that are actually in the movie also play basketball with us, like Jake Johnson, who's in the movie. He he's the reason I got into this league way back before we started playing at Hollywood High, and. Um, yeah, so Pally was like, I got this really weird weekend weekend lined up, um, and we started talking about his the bachelor party he was going to go on and sort of was a springboard conversation that led to this idea um, that became Joshi. And we kind of got it together. We had the tax credit, and then um, Pally's mom passed away, unfortunately, and so we kind of put it in the back burner. And then because I had that script, Life After Beth, I had written in 2003— we just jammed it through because we had the tax credit, even though it ended up not applying because we shot it after the window from the, where the tax credit was applicable. But um, yeah, that was sort of like how this. This is that's a long version. So then after I made Life After Beth, and you know we did good with the sale of the movie, so my investors felt confident enough to sort of like throw me a bone and let me do what I wanted. And so we kind of came back to this project, and you know we made it for really cheap and shot it in 15 days and. You know, I got together a bunch of people that I think are sort of a dream team for me, um, comedically and dramatically as well. And we shot it and edited it and scored
0: it and released it. So when when you guys had to abandon it, was there a script? What, what point were you at in the conversation about John? It was more
1: just sort of a it was less than an outline it was sort of like mm-hmm. a general idea we you know we had we had like i think 100 day lead 100 days lead time from when we knew we were getting the credit until when we were actually going to make mm-hmm. it so i just was sort of thinking like i know what the the structure is i know the general bones of it like i know what it is but you know truthfully at that time when we were going to make it it was sort of the, iter- the iteration of that was we had um Chris Pratt was going to play the Joshy character Ben Schwartz was going to play the Alex Ross Perry character and um and it was uh, Jake Johnson was going to play. I guess the who became the Nick Cole character. Hmm. That's funny. Yeah,
0: but then uh, I, yeah. So I mean, what I'm curious about is at that time, what was the story that grabbed you? Uh, what was the story that you wanted to tell?
1: The sort of the the most bare bones, sort of reductive version of it is a. Uh, a guy who was supposed to get married whose wedding falls apart because his fiance I, I don't know if I should spoil it cuz it you feels can like spoil it. it.
0: We can assume people have. You seen think it. I, I and if should, not it's you, not, a, you know, it's not it's just, a, a Don't spoil
1: it. It's fine. Um yeah it's a a guy whose fiance um takes herself out of the equation before before he's supposed to get married and so uh they had the deposit down still for the the bachelor party house like in Tahoe or wherever it was that we initially wanted to have it be I think it was Ohio and then um then they decide to go through with it anyway, mainly because, you know, after a couple months of just sort of being outside of the social circle and kind of just obviously being more introspective, he feels like he wants to kind of reach out. And then um, it becomes a total shitshow. Sort of like, that was the basic idea
0: of it. Um, what were you looking to explore in this? Like, what's what's interesting to you other than that's the plot? I'd say primarily
1: sort of the the weird way that guys communicate with one another sort of the, the the difficulty in articulating emotions and and sort of the way trauma isn't so clean mm-hmm. the way we deal with it we don't we don't just get over it we don't just go through the cooler stages of grief and then like check out check the list off and then just be like yeah we're cool <laughs> like generally it's a lot of evasion and obfuscation and um I'm just always fascinated by that. And, you know, uh, I had a funny conversation with Lauren Weedman, who plays the prostitute who shows up later in the movie. She had a, a lady friend whose uh, girlfriend uh, um, broke up with her. And so all of her friends, I think it was like 25 women, just descended upon Seattle and sort of were there to sort of grieve this relationship with this woman. And we're just so ready to get into it and from my experience when something bad happens to a guy it's almost like you have like some kind of disease everyone wants to kind of avoid because like god forbid you actually get into it so um yeah for me that was sort of exploring that thing which i feel like i haven't really seen too much of because generally movies for the most part are a little bit more articulate than people are so you mm-hmm. know people tend to write characters saying the perfect thing you know like sort of the you know the spirit d'escalier like the thing you kind of mm-hmm. wish you had said a lot of times writers would project that onto their screenplay and then make these little perfect moments that kind of encapsulate what it's like to go through this whole process. And for me, I wanted to create something a little bit more, I think, ambiguous and contingent that mm-hmm. sort of felt a little bit more like what real life is like, where the, the drama for me is sort of the ev- evasion. So I thought mm-hmm. that was worth exploring.
0: Well, it feels like you created characters who can each sort of take a piece of that you know, of that theme, where they're they're dealing with uh, Joshi's trauma in mm-hmm. different ways. Yeah. Um, talk about about creating those characters. Yes, yeah, so for I think part of
1: uh, I think the execution, the way it kind of came about, was um, I wanted to find characters that were projecting onto Joshi what this weekend is and sort of what he is to them. Mm-hmm. And so even the title itself, it's called Joshy. Um, it's its what Adam Pally calls Josh, and Nick Cole calls him Joshua, and Alex Ross Perry calls him Josh. Like Everyone has a different name for him, and sort of that signifies their idea of who he is and to a greater extent what this weekend symbolizes. So everyone's sort of bringing their own baggage. Everyone's going through their own shit and then like coming to this weekend and projecting onto it what it will be, and at no point are they even really – Not not that they're not there for him. They're all there for him. They love him. He's their friend. But everyone's sort of got this myopic, sort of caught up in their own bullshit thing that ultimately kind of plays itself out over the weekend. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to find – I sort of wanted to create a spectrum of people. So if you kind of created a spectrum, you have like Alex Ross Perry, who's sort of more the bookish – who is probably one of the most articulate people in the movie – and then on one side of the spectrum then you have brett gellman on the other side of the spectrum who is sort of like a complete mess who's just there to treat it like a straight-up bachelor party and then you know uh middle ditch falls probably closer to the alex ross perry side in between maybe him and and anna pally and quoll falls between pally and Gelman. and i kind of wanted to have this broad spectrum of sort of not archetypal guys because i didn't want it to be really sort of just mm-hmm. the you know like i didn't want to create stereotypical guys but something that felt kind of familiar that we all kind of know there's there's certain sort of modes of behavior that guys exhibit that I think we can kind of identify and that's sort of what I was kind of building off of it
0: mm-hmm. makes sense and so tell me about I mean whose story is it to you is, is this movie um, I mean ultimately I think it's uh, Pally's character story
1: mm-hmm. um, it's coming it's, it, I think we see more from his perspective than anyone else um, that's why I call it Joshi, because it's, it's, it's skewed a little bit more towards his side. You know, after we see the opening where we get a sense of Middle Ditch and his character, we immediately go to Pally's character. And then we're sort of experiencing that weekend through Pally to mm-hmm. some extent. I mean, we're not completely subjective. I mean, it is somewhat objective, and we're, you know, bouncing around when he's not. There's, there's definitely tons of scenes without him. But um, I think since that was the genesis that that conversation with Pally and I where it came from, like, I always sort of rooted it with him. I mean, ultimately, it is Joshi's movie. It is Mildred's movie. But sort of the structure of it was intentionally marginalizing his character to some extent mm-hmm. because that's what those guys are doing on that weekend. They're sort of um, subordinating him and his experience to their own. Mm-hmm. So I think... If you did the math, probably it's Pally's movie more than anyone. But I mean, ultimately, the at the core, it's it's Milditch's movie,
0: mm-hmm. and it is an ensemble too. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious to hear about juggling those storylines, those threads, because as you say, each character does have something going on. Each character is trying to get something out of this weekend.
1: Yeah. I mean, I love I love ensemble pieces. I love I mean, I love working with actors. I love kind of tracking people's trajectories and watching them interact with one another and creating ripples that then interact with other ripples and for me that's that's what's really fascinating in in storytelling like as opposed to just sort of tracking like an, from a to b story i like things where they get a little bit more complicated and mm-hmm. uh more braided and so, uh, yeah, the intention was always to kind of have sort of a broader scope and instead of it sort of being just a character study. It's sort of uh, almost, I mean, it sounds pretentious, but it's almost like a sociological study of guys as opposed to sort of just a, you know, singular
0: point of view. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, from a nuts and bolts perspective, how did you start to plot out these storylines? You know, the, the crossing over of mm-hmm. stuff and the way that everybody sort of bumps into each other, that's hard to do from, from a plotting standpoint yeah
1: i don't know i mean like you know i ultimately this movie wasn't outline it didn't really ever become a script so it 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 was an 18 page outline i i just sort of you know i beat it out the basic beats for each character i knew where they started where they ended and somewhere where they were going to be in the middle Mm -hmm. can you give us an example of that Uh like like Um, an easy one for you an easy one so Brett Gelman's character, for instance, mm-hmm. so Brett's character is a function of Nick Kroll's character. So he he shows up because uh, Kroll realizes there's only three other guys there this weekend, and Kroll wants to party, and he wants to use this as an excuse to kind of get Joshy out of his headspace, and figures the best way to do it is you know booze and drugs and strippers, etc. And so he invites someone who would basically back him up and be an advocate for that point of view and invites Brett Gilman along. And so Brett starts off as sort of the consummate party guy who just wants to have a good time. But I always knew that, you know, that's masking sort of some serious darkness and damage, and so you knew you'd have to explore that. So at first you sort of get... There's little moments. There, there's a scene in the um, in a casino when they're first hanging out, and you know, Brett mentions for a second, like, I got to be careful. And it, it's it's such a throwaway line that no one really would ever pick up on. But you're just like, okay, that's a little creepy. Like, what's going on with this? And then they're, like, partying in a hot tub. And at one point, Gilman says to um, Pally, like, you know, my sister's beautiful and she's a dental hygienist and she makes her own, you know, she makes good money. And it's like, okay, what, where, where are you going with this? Like, something's a little off with this guy. And then, of course, the drugs get involved. And once, once you know, he starts getting a little messed up on the drugs, then... The wall kind of comes down, and a guy who ostensibly should be the the least impactful and sort of the guy who's sort of just floating on the edges and sort of helping everyone else, then becomes the center of attention with his drama. And you know, then it almost becomes like we're now we're sidetracked dealing with Gelman's drama, and then we sort of watch. I, mean, I don't want to ruin the movie, but we watch him sort of. I guess. Heal himself in in a pretty inappropriate way, and and then you know sort of is doesn't really fix anything, never really like actually resolves anything. But I guess emotionally, he's able to get something off his chest, or I mean, not off off of his whatever. And then is able to sort of like move on and keep going, just just giving himself just enough motivation to like keep going. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it was never about finding resolution with all these characters because no one has resolution. It was almost like getting in touch with something. Um, feeling it, and then feeling it kind of go away and sort of noting that absence. So for me, there was, like, a very strong element of absence in this movie. I mean, there's primarily the absence of the wedding that's supposed to happen. But then, I mean, the goal for me at the end of the movie when it ends, like, literally as the credits come up, is that you almost feel like like something, like, it's almost like the circus left town. Like, you're like, I never really... Like, I kind of miss these guys, but, like, I'm, I'm exhausted. Like, I'm ready to get out of there. But, like, at the same time, it feels so unresolved. Like, because that's what these weekends kind of feel like. They're always sort of strange and unresolved
0: and confusing and, uh, you know, sort of emotionally challenging. Mm-hmm. But you have to measure that against uh, a satisfying story experience, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. So, so how do you start to do that?
1: Well, I mean, not to, once again, be reductive, but, like, I think when you're, when you're telling a story you know, at some point you want to have some kind of catharsis. And whether or not every single character has a catharsis, there's at least one character that's sort of as a surrogate for that experience. So this movie has that. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think, um, and maybe it's a little too sort of ironic in terms of my um, approach, but there, there are definitely moments where you think something's going to happen that doesn't happen. And so the defying of those expectations to some extent is a little bit of a a little bit of a boost. I don't know whether it's, it's not necessarily cathartic, but it does feel like within the framework of like how you tell a story by taking these sort of jukes and jives that you are kind of playing against the rules a little bit. And so the result of that is less like a satisfying conclusion or, you know, you hit those, the three-act structure like on point. It's more about sort of, uh, I guess, a holistic sort of experience Mm -hmm. and almost an impressionistic experience. So, you know, like. Going back to Robert Altman, I'm not saying like this movie is like supposed to be like a Robert Altman movie, but just he was such an inspiration for me. His, you know, if you look at a movie like The Wedding, A Wedding, or if you look at California Split or, you know, even The Long Goodbye, which actually does have a little bit more, I guess, closure mm-hmm. and, a, and a little bit more structure to it. Um, there is sort of an evasion of the, that structure and sort of kind of it, it lingers in those gray areas. And it lives in those gray areas, as opposed to sort of just like skirting around them, which I think you know more traditional storytelling would. And so um, I'm always fascinated by people that make movies or tell stories or even write songs that kind of employ that device. Mm-hmm.
0: That's interesting. Um, anyway, we were talking about laying out these character arcs, um, and you know, using using Brett's character's arc as an example. So was there a script or do, or was it the outline that went out how did how did the process work for joshi how did i get how did i cast it or, or how did it. we do it um, how did you actually do it um, like was there a script to show or was it this is the yeah studio? there was an
1: outline i mean it was this treatment i mean people use the word scriptment um, it's it's at this point it's actually a traditional way of making a movie so it's not like this is like you know like i'm like doing some cutting-edge science here but um what i did was i uh wrote an 18 page outline that it out every single thing that was going to happen described every scene because you can't just say like we're gonna go do a movie and see what happens like you have an entire crew that's expecting some kind of structure and order so you know it would it, it was written like a screenplay so it would say like interior um oh hi sure. cabin day and then it would say you know Brett Gellman shows up. Brett Gellman says that he does this and this and that. And literally all the beats of what they're saying were written down. It just wasn't, there was no dialogue lines. I think there was absolutely, there might've been a little bit for Paul Reiser, but I think for the most part, there was absolutely no dialogue. It was just straight up story beats. And so I disseminated that. And then when I was trying to get um, actors, you know, I would obviously meet with them. They would have had that outline in advance to to look it over. Um, And a lot of them, some of them, you know, for instance, Kroll had experience doing some more improvisational stuff on the league. All these guys, for the most part, had improvisational experience, not in terms of, like, film, but in terms of UCB mm-hmm. or, um, you know, Olympic or something like that. Um, Alex Ross Perry is a director himself, so he understood the process from that side. And I always knew he was going to be that character once we kind of got this movie going again. And so, you know, I would talk with them about the, the character and the story and, you know, it was definitely fluid. So there's a lot of moments where we would have a little back and forth and give and take. Um, some people took advantage of that more than others and um, yeah, so it was ultimately a collaboration so that when we actually did start shooting it, it wasn't like a, a total you know, like throw throw something up in the air and see what sticks kind of thing. Right. It was more like we knew where we were going to go. I had to tell people what was happening but we would generally do like, you know, three or four takes and sort of a wider shot. I, I, don't, I generally don't like master shots so it would mm-hmm. probably be like a two shot or a three mm-hmm. shot or something. Something that's relatively wide, not just coverage close up. And then by the third or fourth take we'd pretty much find the scene. Like, we knew where it was going, but actually find the lines. And then once we found those lines, we would then get coverage on it. So Mm -hmm. it wasn't like every single take was like, who knows what's going to happen this time. We I mean, everyone's a professional actor, and, you know, you need some sort of consistency in order. I mean, we had one camera. So it wasn't like we were doing cross-coverage, and when you're capturing these, like, moments are able to replicate it, you know, Mm -hmm. that's we had to somehow have some kind of way to do it over and over again so that it would match when we edited it together.
0: Sure. But you're discovering... The language of the scenes exactly. in the early takes. Yeah, I and mean, you can sort of build it from there. Absolutely. And you
1: know, with all these actors who are so incredible in terms of improvisation and just sort of experience and intelligence, it wasn't, I'm not saying it was easy. I mean, it was definitely really stressful and hard. We had no time, we had no money, but I mean, it, for me, it was really fun. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's like instead of, there's no, not that there's no safety net, because we do have a safety net, we do have a, you know, a story that we're falling back on. But every day you go in there, you kind of have to have an open mind and be open to the experience and be present as opposed to sort of just like jamming it out because everyone sort of knows what they're getting themselves into. Like there was there required you to be aware of every single moment and be really sensitive to things. And it, it felt really it was it was I loved it. It was like a beautiful experience for me.
0: Yeah. So what what is gained for you in the final product or in the storytelling that you set out to do from working in this way?
1: Um, I think it 's more personal I think uh, there's there 's sort of an imposition on an actor to find the character within them, and um, when you do it this in general, and when you do it this way you 're sort of more calling something from the person themselves mm-hmm. and uh, personally, I have a, uh, you know a connection to almost all these actors to some extent, you know some I know more than others, but some of them are really close friends of mine, and so I know not not to sort of like say like oh you 're this kind of guy, but I was able to sort of figure out. Something that was organic to who they are, something that kind of came out of authenticity as opposed to um, putting on putting on like a hat or a mask or playing a role everyone everyone there was a piece of everyone who was in it in their character and so it it really was a collaboration, and I always think you know there's, there's certain people who write scripts and they, they get really kind of anal about the way lines are said and the words that are written and you know for me nothing 's holy like i 'm not precious about anything like for me it 's the result that matters, so if you do something and like yeah the character nailed it they said everything you wrote down and it sounds really kind of like you know stayed or it just doesn't sound natural like mm-hmm. then what's the goal like the goal is to make it sound really real and grounded and natural so you know the only way I the only way that You get that is through, like, you know, obviously, like going crazy and directing every single performance and making sure everything is like spot on and it sounds exactly like the script. And you're making, or you could do that, which is like traditionally what I did on my first movie, or you can just sort of find a common ground with the actor and be a little bit fluid with stuff and then sort of find their voice and use their voice so that when it's coming out, they're actually engaging, they're looking into the actor's eyes, having a moment, as opposed to just waiting for the other actor to say the next line for them to say their next line. So it's, it's like a real, I mean, it's, I found it super um, super productive to work that way I, I mean I don 't think it works for every actor. you have to find the mm-hmm. right crew, but like this this group in particular yeah. were you know it was a dream
0: um what were the were there surprises for you as you went through? I mean always you, you knew what the story was, but what were yeah. some of the fun discoveries for you um, let me see i mean sh-
1: Lauren Weedman, who plays the prostitute I mentioned earlier um i i didn't i wasn't super familiar with her work i i saw her reel and i couldn't believe how great she was in her reel like she, she was on looking and i think she had like a little arc on that show hung but she she's not really out there so it's it's not and i i didn't really watch looking until i saw the real and um just the stuff she was coming up with like it, it was it was just i'd always wanted that character to be a real earthy kind of like um i don't want to say like granola but like And not super New Agey, but like she, whatever she did, she nailed it. The way I was trying to explain to her, like I want this prostitute. She's an Ojai prostitute. She's not like a San Diego (laughs) prostitute. She's not a Los Angeles prostitute. She's specifically from this one region, which is like witchy and sort of like country, but like also it's California. And um, so, I think just. For me, she just blew me because I, I like I'm not saying the bar was really low, but I wasn't expecting what she brought to the table and she's just a master. So she hmm. like blew me away. It was crazy. I think there's a couple of scenes with um Pally and um Jenny Slate that I was just you know, it it didn't it wasn't as hard as it should have been for me. Like there was um there's a scene where they wake up in bed together and there's a scene where they have like a frank conversation in a bar together and you know i kind of explained to them what i was going for and sort of the mood and where they're coming from and uh, there wasn't a crazy amount of adjustments to be made they just completely got it and they ran with it and i don't know if it's like sort of just the synchronicity we were in from having done a couple scenes together and they kind of understood the characters but obviously whenever you're doing these things like you have an actor who like is you know i'm focused on the big picture plus i'm trying to get as much in the little picture you know like the, the 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 trees for the forest as possible but Actors are sitting there focusing on their characters so much, they're coming up with stuff. So, know. you know, something like this, like, you'd think you'd need more guidance for people to just sort of find the way. But at a certain point, they just it just becomes, like, this process mm. where they're able to find it. And, I am I mean, it's, like, not that, it, it's not that, like, I I'm, I stepped away and I was like, you guys do your thing. Like, I was definitely in there directing it. But the, the sort of thing that they were finding was just, it was so spot on exactly what i had wanted that it, it was refreshing and sure. i so, so so i'd say like for the second half of the movie it really paid off in dividends hmm. because we sort of laid the groundwork by priming the pump by doing the first part and getting them to the level of being comfortable enough to perform this way that then when you started getting started going on a roll like it was just, i mean it just felt so real to me and hmm. i loved it
0: uh, and i imagine you had to
1: shoot in order to achieve this generally we did we try as best as we could but you know all these people have crazy schedules and you know for the most part we were all sort of sequestered up in ohio mm-hmm. you know it was kind of like a camp but um you know there's certain people that came in for a couple of days that you know we we couldn't you know w- you know work their schedules sure. so that would be in order so yeah we did it as much as possible in order but there was some stuff that we were shooting that was way out of order but
0: did, could you feel that when you were editing uh, no. I mean, it's not something that we, the viewer, would necessarily notice. Yeah. But, but you, who is so inside it, may.
1: Well, you know, when you're doing movies in general, you generally shoot out of order. It's it's right. a crazy luxury to be able to shoot something in order. So it's the default is knowing you're shooting it out of order. So it doesn't, it's not like, oh, man, I wish we shot that in order. Like, everyone wishes they shot everything in order. So that's, that's just a <laughs> common, you know, thing that is always being felt. Like, I just did another movie in the spring, which was relatively similar in process. And we shot it completely out of order, hmm. and so it was an improvisation. It had a lot of improvisation in it, but it was it was completely out of order. We were shooting, you know, one of the end scenes in the first week, hmm. and um, it's it's stressful. But you you just gotta be prepared. So you just gotta think it out. There's less room for things to develop over time, and and just sort of more. You just more have to like, I guess, anticipate a lot more. But that's what's fun about this job. So. Sure.
0: Um, what did you learn from these experiences uh, that you would take to the next movie, whether it's it's done in the same way or in a more traditional way? Um, I think it's just more, I guess, the, the
1: people you hire and the people you work with. Um, you just got to gotta be, you know, when you, when you meet people and everyone's trying to get a job on something, for the most part, everyone's going to tell you what you want to hear, and there's really no, and especially if you go check references on people, no one's going to throw anyone under the bus, so... I don't know. The, like you, ultimately, I feel like a lot of the bogeys that popped up were things that I kind of had red flags and felt like sort of intuitively, but I kind of overrode because I was getting a lot of information that contradicted it. And I think sometimes you just got to kind of listen to your intuition. And if something feels a little fishy, it probably is. I don't know.
0: Uh, it sounds like so much of the work you, you know, the, the first 10 years of work that you were doing um, is built around. Meeting people and knowing people mm-hmm. in the industry, uh, which is something that we comes up every once in a while on this podcast this idea of networking without networking you know there's a way to do it and there's a way to do it mm-hmm. uh, what what was your experience how did you what was the first job you had out here
1: The Roberts and Mancus Job so okay. I was working as a PA for this company called image movers. Mm-hmm. Um, And the way I got that is like, you're you're wondering how I got that job. Sure. So (laughs) I went to NYU film school, graduated, and within like a week or two, moved out to Los Angeles. And I didn't know what I was doing. And um, a friend of mine, my friend Russell, he had moved out a year earlier. He graduated a year before me. And so I asked to see his resume because I wasn't sure... You know, we just we just spent four years making short films. Like, I don't know if you're supposed to put, yeah, I wrote this short film and wrote this short film. Like, what is what am I putting on a resume to get a job out? Of here? Like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. So I looked at his resume. Um, thankfully, it was a disaster. So like, it said, for instance, <laughs> that he was born in Norman, Oklahoma, which who puts where they are born on a resume? So I just was like, okay, great. So I put, I was born in Miami, Florida. And then I wrote down, you know, like some of the job like I worked at RSA Black Dog in New York, which is like a, a Tony Scott and, um, mm-hmm. well, not Tony Scott anymore, but it was Ridley and Tony Scott's production company with their kids. Um, and like stuff like that, just like, you know, experience I had in that. And just, it, it looked terrible, but turns out, when I, and then also, uh, this is I don't even know if they do this anymore. But Hollywood Reporter used to come out every Thursday with the list of everything that's in pre-production, production, mm-hmm. and post-production. So I just did a cover letter and resume to every single thing that was oh going on in God. California. So it was probably like 150 different productions, and I, you know, I did a cover letter and resume. And, and what just, were you saying in those? Oh, like um, dear whoever, um, I just recently graduated from Wayne Film School, and you know, I'm a team team worker and I'm punctual or whatever the hell you say, you know, like, you know, I'm really looking for any opportunity to Mm -hmm. get experience in this industry, you know,
0: which is, I mean, like, look, that's what, that's what we did 15, 20 years ago. Now you can do it online, but it's essentially saying the same thing, saying the same. Yeah. I mean, the gist is like, I'm looking for an opportunity, I'm the perfect
1: guy for you. And I'm like, malleable and open and I'm punctual. You have to be punctual. And so (laughs) then, um. So I got a response back from the image members people because it turns out Steve Starkey, who used to be – I mean not Steve Starkey, Jack Rapke, who used to represent Zemeckis. He was like a power agent in CA. He was like just under Mike Ovitz. He represented like – Tim Burton and Michael Mann and Jerry Bruckheimer and obviously Zemeckis and like just all these like crazy people he always wanted to be a producer it turns out he went to NYU and was from Miami so he saw that the background that I was from Miami and was like we gotta get this kid in there <laughs> so like I went in and met with him and, and I got the job and he felt this literally said he felt a cosmic connection with me um and so we, that definitely helped out. He, Because I, I DP'd a lot of kids' in movies in school mm-hmm. just because I think I was just paying attention. Most people were like zoning out when they are teaching you how to load cameras and stuff. And so, and that's what Jack also had done. And so he felt this awesome. like connection to me. And so that got me in there. And then I was, you know, I, immediately I started working on What Lies Beneath. And um, I, I missed the first half of Castaway. They shot, because the, Tom Hanks mm-hmm. had to lose a bunch of weight because he's a Castaway. And so they shot the first half without me because I hadn't arrived in town yet. And then we shot All of What Lies Beneath at Sony. And then we finished the back half of castaway with with tom hanks and yeah and so i had crazy production like literally my first day on the job um uh zemeckis is like hey so uh S- steve is gonna come by or steven's coming by can you just make sure to walk to set and i'm like great and i'm thinking it's steve starkey who's his producer who's like <laughs> one of the guys that runs um image movers and it was like literally this like teal explorer rolls up and it's steven spielberg and i'm like walking with steven spielberg on my first day like It's like, hey, Mr. Spielberg. And he's, you know, just, he's like, oh, you're in good hands. You know, congratulations on getting the job. And he was really sweet.
0: That's really funny. Yeah. So that was like (laughs) my first day. It was awesome. So uh, you stuck around on those couple movies. And Mm -hmm. then... In the back of your head was the goal to direct eventually. Always, Is yeah. That, that's why you were at NYU. In the first
1: always, place. yeah. I just always wanted to be a director, mm-hmm. and you know, I made that really clear. And I, I didn't really fit. Not that I mean, I did. I think I did an okay job. I probably sucked a little bit, but I didn't. I, I'm not like a super corporate guy. And you know, these these uh, production companies that you know, you're wearing a button down shirt and like khakis, and you're t- you know, tucking your shirt in, and you're drinking coffee. I don't even drink coffee. Like, I don't have the vibe of that. You know, and like. So it, you know, I just and the woman she actually passed away sadly, and she, I loved her. But this woman, Sharon Felder, was the office manager, and she was like like the sweet like Jewish mom that was like running the company. And like we would just once the movie was over, like once we had done all those movies, Zemeckis is like, I'm gonna go to Jamaica for a couple of years and just chill out because that was really <laughs> stressful. So all we would do is just like eat all the time. She would just be like, What are we having for breakfast? Okay, great. Now that we finished eating breakfast. What are we having for lunch? And it was really sweet and fun. I was getting paid what I thought was a lot of money. I mean, sure. it was probably not tons, but like back then, it felt like I was actually getting paid yeah. some money. And I just Knew like at some point like this this wasn't leading to where I didn't want to be an executive I didn't want to be a producer I wanted to make my own stuff and so I remember I sat down with Jack Rockey the guy who hired me and I, I mean you know to his credit he's like you got to get out there and do stuff but he also told me like you're not just going to stumble upon some writer director who's going to mentor you and teach you the way this is not how this industry works like you got to you know you you just meet people and you you know you, you meet executives and you learn the process from the inside and then eventually if you're lucky you'll get it to work out and. I mean, I was was an idiot. I was like 22 years old. I'm like, whatever you say, man. Like, I don't believe you. (laughs) And like, it actually worked out for me because I did find a writer director who then took me under his wing and mentored me. But that happened. Yeah. So like, I yeah, he, I, in that one year of experience, I learned about this thing called the UTA job list, Mm -hmm. which I don't know if that exists anymore. But it was it it was like it was like a Craigslist for like industry jobs, and it would be like you know this person's looking for an editor. This person's looking for. So in this case, it said. Filmmaker, writer, director is looking for an assistant editor for a uh, documentary for something that's going to appear online or whatever. So I applied to that and literally was at home and putting Floating with Disaster on. Um, my friend had it on Laserdisc, so this is totally <laughs> dating this. So we're watching Floating with Disaster on Laserdisc, and the phone rings, and it's um, David Russell's assistant asking me if I want to come in for a meeting. And of course I did. And then I started working as an assistant editor on this. Fake documentary that never saw the light of day because the dot com bubble burst like right before. So, um, but you know, when you're when you're editing, you're you're just you just sort of you know. Hugh would ask me like, oh, you know, we need glue between this scene and that scene. Like, what do you think? And I would sort of pitch ideas to him. Hmm. And then it's like one of those things over the year. Like one thing led to another. Um, specifically, I got like a really bad eye injury, so I couldn't do anything. And then he just started telling me some ideas, and then we just started working together.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I guess like, and that's the sort of intangible part that's hard to explain to people mm. is you have to be around you have to be a person yeah you have to do your job yeah but I, like the making an inching forward is is what I'm really curious about can you is there a way to bear down on that a little more and sort of yeah recall I mean, those conversations that led to collaboration um
1: I mean, I think at that point I was young and naive, so, mm-hmm. and I was really confident. So I really – and I, you know, in my mind – A there was, winning combination. Yeah, young, naive, and confident. And in my mind, there's no way that I wasn't going to end up becoming a director. Like, you see that out here. I mean, everyone it's, – it's, it's rare, I think, for writers and directors um, because there's just less of them than there are for actors. But out, out here, you see tons of actors who are constantly dealing with rejection. So you know, it's this, this sort of weird um, cognitive distance that you have to have where you're constantly being told you're not good enough or like, you're not getting the job. So you get down on yourself, you can't be, so you need to be somewhat realistic and understand that you didn't get the job so you can do some self-improvement. But at the same time, you got to be naive enough to think like, I'm going to get that job every single time and put yourself out there because <laughs> the way I see it, like the way this specifically happened for me was I basically, it's not, it sounds like a scam again, but I sort of told David, he had wanted me to work on this screenplay with him sort of under the table, like, mm-hmm. you know, without me getting any credit for it and just sort of like ghostwrite it for him basically. And I just did some, like, uh, was it Aikido? Like, when you take someone's energy and, like, <laughs> use it on them. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Why don't we just have the studio pay for it instead of you paying for it? Because, like, why do you want to pay me money and that's your money? You just have them pay, it, pay for it. And I sort of appealed to his frugality. <laughs> and um, he's like, yeah, that's actually not a bad idea. And so I sort of used that momentum to, you know, become a writer. So um, I think it's like you, you kind of have to be, like, really sensitive in the moment. And sort of there's – I would say that was probably the only chance I would have ever had that one little tiny mm-hmm. moment that I basically manipulated and took advantage of. And had I not done that, I probably would have either been an executive or just moved back to Miami and be like, I don't know, some own a restaurant or something. I'm no like an you know, architect. I've no idea what the hell I'd be doing. <laughs> maybe a doctor? I don't know. Yeah, probably one of those three things. Yes, you just got to realize, like, there's there's just one moment, maybe there's more, maybe there would have been more, Mm -hmm. but uh, as far as I know, there was this one little, like, intersection of fate, and I could have just sort of been passive, or I, I, in my case, I sort of took the initiative and, you know, did a scam, but, like, it ended up working out, and I think a lot of people have that opportunity. Sometimes you have to recognize it, sometimes it just, you don't even get that opportunity. So it's, you know, I I made this analogy on, um, like, last week, but for me, it seems like there's like the f- the fresh boat of people coming out here that wanted to do creative stuff, and it's almost like the opening of Saving Private Ryan, where that the front of that <laughs> boat opens up, and there's just bullets whizzing by, and just people's heads are exploding all around you, and like maybe you'll make it to the beach. Chances are you're not. It's like a one in whatever eight thousand chance you're gonna live. But if you do, like you have a chance. So I mean, the least you could do is at least put yourself out there. If you mm-hmm. fail, you fail. Like you know, at least you took a shot. Like mm-hmm. that you know, saying like you, you miss all the shots you don't make, or you miss 100% of the shots you don't make, or whatever. Right. It is. It's like that. You gotta
0: take a chance. But it sounds like. Uh, Russell was was amenable. I mean, it's it wasn't totally a scam. He wanted to collaborate with you. Oh, for sure. He was into the idea, and then obviously you guys worked well together. you were able to back up. Yeah. Uh, back it up. If you couldn't, I'm sure you wouldn't be here now. Right. Um, so, can we? Was Huckabee's the first collaboration that you guys did, or was it the first, the only one that was made? It was the only one that was technically made. I mean, I did. We did. A, we <laughs> technically did a, made. Well, no,
1: because we did a pass on uh, Meet the Fockers. Oh, okay. Which, um, you know, we did a page one rerun on that, and they randomly took out some jokes that out of context make absolutely no sense but left it in the movie like there was uh, my friend josh like uh he got really into capoeira when i first moved out here and i just thought it was ridiculous and i called it brazilian dance fighting because i just was like what are you doing like are you not going to like be able to defend yourself and so in in our version of meet the Fockers, um uh i think his name is greg like the the ben stiller's character's father who's ultimately justin hoffman in the movie has a neighbor who's a bully who like comes up and is just picking on him all the time and does capoeira moves to kind of intimidate him and then de niro's character then teaches in Krav Maga, which is like the Israeli sort of, you know, street fighting or whatever it is, like the, like the dirtiest, like most effective style of fighting. So that, I guess the arc for for the Dustin Hoffman character is that once the guy starts doing that weird, like those, those dancey moves and then doing those like high kicks over your head, that he just like grapples him to the ground and like basically breaks his arm in half or whatever. And um, so that was like sort of what was happening in the script. That was one thing. Then when you see the movie... They, they roll up to Miami, which they kept, I don't know why, and because um, like I'm familiar with Miami, so I was like, let's make sure. it in Miami. They roll up to South Florida or whatever, and Dustin Hoffman is doing um, capoeira, and they're like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm doing capoeira, it's Brazilian dance fighting. So they took it totally out of context, applied, gave him capoeira, used the line about Brazilian dance fighting, which I used to like make fun of my friend, and then it doesn't add anything to the story and doesn't lead anywhere, so... Was this a lesson to
0: you about studio movies?
1: I guess. I mean, it's just, it's like, yeah, I mean, studio movies are, like, you know, made by committee. Like, everything's made by committee. So, like, you know, you have the Whites brothers or whoever else was, you know, John Hamburg. I, how many people, I don't know, worked on that script, like, sure. ch- turning it around. But what you end up getting is, like, a really sort of convoluted, fractured thing that's, like, held together by
0: Gossamer Strings. It is, it it's rarely creates the kind of movie that is the reason you became a person who wants to make movies. Right. Um, I'm cari- But I'm curious to hear about some of the um, collaborations you had with uh, David O. Russell. And we mm-hmm. can talk about Huckabees because people know it. But was that the idea that he pitched you, that you said, why don't we make the studio? Yeah, he
1: he had, he had a movie. I mean, he had uh, Flaring with Disaster, and he had Three Kings. So Flaring with Disaster was Miramax. Three Kings was Warner Brothers. He owed each of them a movie. He somehow finagled it to get them to combine those into one movie and That's so great. he told me this idea he had he had a dream actually about a detective who was following him around watching him do sort of everyday menial stuff and uh he just thought it'd be a really funny, fun movie about someone who kind of like gets involved in your sort of existential angst and is able to sort of follow you around mm-hmm. and kind of deduce things as a private investigator about your life and so we worked on that while we and you know, we worked on a bunch of other stuff and you know it's it's took a long time like we our first I mean, this is, these are all writers so they'll understand our first draft was 325 pages <laughs> wow. so like if you're not a writer that that's like a 6 hour mini series <laughs> and so we spent about a year maybe a little bit over a year just reducing it down to i think it was like 117 pages when we finished um so that whole process was really really like interesting for me because it taught me to not be precious about stuff like there were character there was you know two or three characters that ended up becoming one character you know combining things and just losing things all together and um yeah so i just learned from that experience like don't don't hang on to things if they're not moving things forward Mm -hmm. and don't get precious about stuff because like who are you doing this for like this isn't self-indulgent like you need an audience and you need it to Be accessible You can't do a six hour movie Like this isn't like Fassbender Like we're not You know we're not like No one's going to give you That luxury of being able To do like A six hour Existential comedy so that was like a pretty big lesson to learn on that.
0: Sure. Uh, how did you guys work together? Who who typed? Who wrote? Who walked around? Did you do? Did you make note cards? Did you work off a whiteboard?
1: We we would always write together, so we'd always be uh, sitting next to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was sort of we would alternate who was typing. He I can't I type like with like my index fingers, like kind of like a chicken. Um, he's he like actually knows how to type like a real person, so he'd be faster. But I you know it would be the same thing, and I sort of. Uh, in terms of like beating out the characters, we would have a big board, and we would um, write down each character's arc on top of each other, and then sort of look, you know, to see if there's any way to intersect moments. So, mm-hmm. for instance, if one character is at this point is you know having doubts about who they are, and then we notice like down here this other character is like you know really um, coming 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 into a breakthrough or something like that, and we can line those two stories up so that they kind of play off each other. It was like a real it was almost like a graphic representation of the arcs almost like a excel spreadsheet or something and then we just started writing it out and kind of going with it and you know just um i mean this is sort of an interesting story so I had uh, this is not that interesting but I had like a problem with my levator scapulae which is like a muscle that goes down your neck down to your um, what is it called shoulder blade and he had lower back pain because you know when you're writers it sucks like your back's just ruined which is another reason why you should be a director because like (laughs) it's healthier but um, he so we were both going to this chiropractor this guy Dr. Rochford who was like insanely good he wasn't I have a whole thing. Like chiropractors, for the most part, in, you know, speaking about scams, I feel like it's mostly a scam. It's just like they just crack your neck, you feel good for 12 seconds, and then you have to come back in a week because you're a disaster. But this guy would adjust you once and really figure out what was wrong with you and fix you. So we would go there, and you'd almost have this like zen glow after you were done. So his waiting room was always just really chill. Like it was like a really, it had a nice light. So we we would get it. We got an adjustment there, and then we started writing there. And then we would just start going in there every day, even though we weren't getting adjustments, just to hang out in his waiting room to, <laughs> just because the vibe was so nice. And you, you, I mean, I met Don Knotts. Like he was like, there's all these like celebrities that would pop up, like Raquel Welch, Don Knotts, Courtney Cox, um, just random people, and we would just be sitting there on the couch next to each other writing and talking out stuff and. Everyone was like, what is going on with those guys? But that's, I would say probably 85% of Huckabees was written in this doctor's waiting room office. (laughs) That's so
0: strange. Yeah. Um, How did you start to, uh, when you're working on your own, like Life After Beth was Uh fully scripted, Mm -hmm. right? Um, What does your process look like then? In terms of how to write a script? Yeah, when you're actually scripting. I would
1: do an outline and then just sort of fill it out. Like, I I love writing dialogue, um, which is ironic because, like, now I'm basically phasing that aspect of my life out. But, um, yeah, the story for me is always the bigger challenge, just trying to find those beats and making sure they're super locked in before then I write the dialogue, before I then write the dialogue. And so, um, you know, I sort of, for me, I think when I'm beginning a script or anything like this, there's always, like, a seminal moment or sort of like a sort of like the scene that sort of epitomizes the movie or the tone i find that one scene and then i sort of either you know build it out you know retroactively or moving forward from that scene so for me in life after beth there's the scene where the zach character sees you know his girlfriend has died he looks through the window and sees his girlfriend in there and then busts in and is like what the hell is going on here and sort of that weird sort of confusion was the seed of the movie for me. Mm-hmm. Just that weird. Because I always love... The, there's, uh, you know, uh, Fyodor Tadorov, Have you heard of him? Mm-hmm. So um, uh, he's, he was like a Russian, I guess, formalist thinker. Like, he he coined the term the fantastic, not the word the fantastic, but as sort of a genre of... of um, Literature, so you have like Kafka, who's the fantastic, where there's a hesitation between it being uncanny and marvelous. Like there's no explanation for what's happening. You know, Gregor Samsa turns into a cockroach or some kind of insect. There's no explanation for why. It sort of just maintains that hesitation. Like we're never really sure where it's going. So that was always fascinating to me. Um, you know, the the other side of the spectrum is science fiction, where you're explaining everything. You're like, this is the future, and in the, in this future, we have this technology. And that explains why we're doing this. And then there's the Marvelous, which is like Alice in Wonderland, where it's just like a shit show of anything can happen. Like, there's no ground rules. Like, it, you know, like all of a sudden, you know, we start levitating. Like, what the hell? Who cares? Um, and so you almost like it's, it's it sort of erodes the trust a little bit because it's just fan, you know, it's it's fun. So it's like kids love that shit. Right. And then science fiction is more for adults because then it's like, well, okay, cool. That's fun. But like, what's the reason? So the, the fantastic sort of emphasizes that hesitation between those two places. And, you know, like there's certain, it's generally like Latin American writers kind of employ that a little bit, like Julio Cartasar and um, Felizberto Hernandez and guys like that are always people that I was drawn to. And so that scene for me kind of encapsulated that experience of just like, I don't know what's happening and this doesn't make any sense. And it's never really fully explained.
0: That's interesting. Um, you know, there's something to working outside the studio system to get away with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much, how much input from outside of yourself do you have on these features? Um, I'd say like less and less
1: of anyone else. Um, when, I, when I was writing life after Beth, I you know I'd show it to some friends and get some notes and you know they'd give me some ideas on this on, on Joshi uh, to a lesser extent I, I don't I think I only show the actors and actors don't really crawl maybe to some extent has sort of a broader point of view, but for the most part, people just tend to focus on themselves Mm -hmm. in the script and they don't really give you bigger, broader notes. Um, So that, and then on this last one I just did, um, I feel like I just showed it to people and we're like, all right, this is it. So like, i never, I feel like I'm not, I don't, I'm not like an insular person. I just think it's harder when you're trying to do more nuanced stuff. It's, it's almost like these things are, are sort of mnemonic devices for what's going on in your brain more than, a piece of literature that everyone is gonna read and it communicates something universally. So for me it's more like a cheat sheet at this point. Hmm. And so, you know, I'll look at the I'll look at it and I'm like, I see the movie there, but then if I were to show it to you, you're like, this is just fractured and strange, like what this is like fragmented nonsense. Like I get that there's scenes here, but what are they about? Like what's happening in the scene? So yeah, I think at this point they've just become mnemonic devices for me. And hmm. I think I've become more insular, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> it seems to be working. Yeah. Um what is the next movie? When is this, when can people see it? Do you know yet? well we just locked picture on it um
1: it's called the little hours it's um we shot in italy in tuscany in uh the spring in april and may or just pretty much most of april and it's uh well Aubrey plaza again she's in everything i do um it's Aubrey plaza allison brie kate mccucci um molly shannon john c riley dave franco jemima kirk adam powley again because he's literally in everything i do paul whites as well um, Paul Reiser's always in everything I do. Um, Lauren Weedman's in this one again, and it's just a really fun movie. Like I don't want to spoil it too much, sure. but it's great. It's uh, like- are there
0: plans for it? Do you know what's happening with it yet?
1: Uh, just right now, I'm scoring it with you know okay. Dan Romer. He did *Beast of the Southern Wild* and he did um, *Beast of No Nation*. He did Joe Swanberg's movie *Digging for Fire*. So he's scoring it, and we're in the middle of that right now, like literally every day. And then I'm going to go up to Skywalker and mix it in a couple weeks, and then I'm assuming it's going to be in the festival circuit.
0: Great. Yeah. Well, good luck. Uh, Joshi is out, as you said, uh, on VOD mm-hmm. and and in some theaters? Yeah, and some random theaters. Yeah.
1: <laughs> There's not much of an attempt to put it in the theaters this time. People can see it, though. Yeah, you um, can get it on iTunes and Amazon okay. and then all the other ones. And then in November, I think it's going to be on Hulu. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, have you seen any movies lately that you want to tell people about? Uh, anything yeah. that you've gotten excited or inspired by? Yeah, I just saw Wiener. Um, it was excellent. It's great, it's
1: right? It's so great. I mean, it's that i mean i can't believe the access they had and i can't believe the sort of i guess uh lack of self-awareness that everyone was exhibiting while they were being filmed the 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 sort of dynamic between um anthony Weiner and huma is just like i can't believe it's it feels like you're watching you're watching cringe comedy like you're it, it cuts to her and her reactions to what's going on and just sort of it's just exasperating I can't believe it yeah. but he's also such a fascinating character like I don't dislike him and I got to the point after watching it where I'm like okay everyone's got weird sexual shit like literally at least you know his stuff isn't even physical like it's just some weird you know like he needs some kind of recognition and he just wants people to see his penis but it's like he's not actually like doing anything f- I mean obviously it's not terrible like this is what he's doing is terrible like it's not good right. but at the end of the day compare him to like what some of the Kennedys have done or what I'm sure some other people have done that are politicians he's really fired up about stuff and like he really wants change and like he actually cares so I'm not saying overlook his transgressions <laughs> but at the same time I don't know it's, it well becomes, this is why the movies, fascinating yeah it's super fascinating like I think that's great like I love that um I saw The Witch recently I thought that was really good
0: um yeah, I'm trying to think I don't know have you seen anything recently? They sound good no, these are, Those are all good ones. Yeah, these are right. good ones. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now leaving nerdist.com.